Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. Today's guest was introduced to me by Rabbi Isaiah Rothstein. You might remember him from episode 10 on the creation story in Genesis. Nate Looney currently serves as the Jedi Director of Community Safety and Belonging for the Jewish Federations of North America. JEDI stands for Jewish Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Nate is concerned about how equity, diversity, and inclusion can be brought not only to the Jewish community, but to his other community as well, that of young, especially urban farmers. Nate Looney's great-great-great-grandparents were slaves who, after gaining their freedom, cleared 240 acres in North Louisiana and established a farm that is still run by his family today. Following in the family tradition, but rebooting it for his version 2.0, as he puts it, Nate started Westside Urban Gardens, an agricultural startup in his hometown of L.A. Not wanting to relocate to the countryside in order to become a farmer, he studied hydroponic and aquaponic farming, newer approaches to growing food that make it possible in a state that is beset by droughts to use much less water. As you'll hear in our conversation, Nate is one of those people who has followed an unusual career path cleaving to a sense of what has mattered most to him at a given moment in time. In 2003, he joined the U.S. Army National Guard and then relocated to New Orleans, where he served as a military police soldier. In 2005, Nate was part of the rescue efforts after Hurricane Katrina struck, and in 2008 was deployed to Iraq. He subsequently left the Army to finish college and eventually found his way to farming. So you have a fascinating biography. You followed an unusual path to farming. You served in the U.S. Army National Guard and then as a military police soldier. How did you transition from being in the military to a career in farming? It was a long roundabout way, but the short of it is, you know, after spending time in the military and working with my hands and being in diverse environments, I realized that I wasn't really built for your typical nine to five, sit in the office with fluorescent lights, clock in, clock out. And, you know, I was working on an undergraduate business degree and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with that degree. Did I want to go to grad school and go for an MBA or work for a corporation or something like that? And I really sat back and decided that, you know, for who I was and for how I moved through the world, that I wanted to do something that was a little bit different. And so I started doing research on like, what's the future? What are the things that the world will need, you know, in perpetuity? And food is one of them. And and at the time we were in the middle of, or at a drought, we've had several droughts here in California, but we were in a really big drought at the time. And so I started doing some research on like, what's the future of growing food with less water? And so that kind of put me off to the races in this direction of agriculture. And so that's just kind of, that's how it started. It started with that initial idea of like, what is, what is, what is the need? How do I meet this need? And then that's how I got into growing hydroponically and aquaponically. So just to follow up on the connection with your background in the military, I looked at an article about you on the Farmer Veteran Coalition website And it quotes you as saying, food is the next great war. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Oh, my goodness. It's so funny that it gives me like makes the hair on the back of my neck raise when I think about that, because I said that a few years ago. 
And given all of the things that are going on in our current world, it really rings to be true. You know, we're faced with historic levels of inflation. So the cost of purchasing food is a lot more challenging now than it was when I said that. And then in turn, the cost of producing food is also equally as challenging. Uh, So if you just think about the cost of transporting food, a food mile in gallons of gas adds up. And, you know, we're looking at historic gas prices right now. So what does that mean for the individual farmer that's growing the food, being able to actually not only grow the food, but be able to feed themselves after they've sold off their product? You know, I see that as being one piece of it. The other piece of it is growing food in a way that is complementary with our environment. There's a lot to be said about the fact that our water table in California is, has been depleted. Um, so there, it's a it's a war on multiple fronts. It's the access to food in urban environments and economically um, un- unstable communities. It's the ability of the actual farmer producer to be able to keep their lights on as a result of growing food. And then if you add on to that the layer of our farming population aging out. So the the average age of a farmer today it continues to go up. I forget, I don't know, I don't have the the exact age in front of me right now, but I believe that it's somewhere in the 50s, average age of a farmer is in the 50s. So anyone that's in that group, they're thinking about retirement. And then the challenge becomes, how do we replace that population of farmer producers with the younger farmers? Well, younger farmers, if they've gone to college, they're faced with student loan debt on top of being able to meet their basic needs. It's a little bit higher of an opportunity cost for most farmers. So we're left in this limbo stage of like, how are we producing our own food without being able to have the population source to do it? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought that much about the age of farmers. Um, I live, so I'm in New York, about an hour north of the city. I live near Stone Barns. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but they train young farmers and you know, that's a big part of their kind of proof of concept, right? So as you say, there are many pieces that come together in terms of the potential threat or risks around producing food. One of them is climate. And so having read your bio, I can't help but notice that you were there in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, which was really this sort of watershed moment, I think, for a lot of people. And so I wonder how that has affected you and how you know, and just, and you were in Iraq as well, and how being on those kind of frontline situations has affected you. I'm sure there's not just like a one-to-one, you know, correlation, but it must heighten your sense of what's at stake sometimes, even when you're talking about farming and producing food. Yeah. I mean, I think about it like, you know, in Louisiana, hurricane season happens every year. So you know that there's going to be hurricanes and you know somewhere along the Gulf Coast, there's going to be at least one catastrophic hurricane. And the interesting thing is that from Hurricane Katrina till now, every year it's like, this is the worst hurricane that we've had in history. And then the next year it's like, oh, this is the worst hurricane that we've ever had. So, you know, it's a consistent thing of the problems getting worse. Uh, and it's, yes, there's the the impact on the environment and the human loss and the human toll, there's also the impact on the capability to grow. So my family's farm is in northern Louisiana, 
up near uh, Monroe and in, in Bastrop Bonita area, Louisiana. And so up in that area, you know, if you have too much rain, then your crops, what, what you know, your crops are going to get drowned. So, so there's that side of it, of the impact of too much water versus here in California where we don't have enough water. And then every time you turn around, there's another wildfire. Um, and, and that has its, its own impacts on people's ability to grow. I remember there was a huge fire that happened. This was, uh, I think, 2018 in the Oxnard area. And so the reason why that fire resonates with me is because I was selling in the farmer's market at that time. And the vendor next to me was selling produce that was being grown in that area and lost several greenhouses as a result of that fire. So then it's like its impact on supply chain, its impact on the individual farmers that are on the land, the migrant workers that are working that land as well. So when you think about like climate change, you're like, okay, here's this big idea of a thing. But then when rubber meets the road, the impacts are, are far greater than, than you think. Like, for example, avocados, like there was an avocado farm that burnt up and then here now in Los Angeles, California, avocados are a big deal. So that meant that the cost of avocados went up and taking it a step further. How does that affect restaurants that, that rely on wholesale avocados? And so it's a snowball effect. Um, you know, but it makes it very concrete at the same time. Yeah, I'm familiar with the Thomas fire because my dad started an olive oil farm in Ojai. So they were affected. Actually, the olive trees did okay, but the avocado trees did burn. I'm curious about, you mentioned your family farm, which I read about a little bit, but I would love to hear the story of your family farm because those are important roots. Yeah. Um, you know, on some, compared to the rest of my family that operates that farm, I sometimes feel like a little bit of an imposter because, you know, I'm relatively new to the farm game compared to them. So my grandmother's grandfather started the farm um, in Louisiana. It's a homestead. <clears throat> he cleared the land himself and it's in family ownership in perpetuity. Currently, my cousin runs that farm and they do monocrop corn, soy. The corn that's grown there, it goes to local hunting lodges as deer feed. And so, you know, that's that's something that's like a really rich piece of, of history for me, uh, specifically because uh, my grandmother's grandfather's parents were enslaved. So for him to be born free, and then also to cultivate this land in Louisiana in a place that isn't exact, wasn't exactly friendly to black and brown people at that time is something that's revolutionary. But, you know, I always liked to say that when I was in commercial operation, that I was doing his work 2.0, because all the stories that my grandmother told me about, you know, how he operated the farm and the things that were going on there there was innovation all around. So she tells me about how there was water catchment silos on all the houses, that it was the first property in the area to have running water and to have a radio, to have TV. So all of these things that were seen as very revolutionary in its time were being done on that farm. You know, it's something that I, I definitely fell back on in times when it was hot in my greenhouse and 110 degrees. And I'm like, why am I doing this? And I was like, well, you know, Horse Hill didn't have AC. So I guess I'm going to get in there and get it done. You know? That's amazing. That's quite a legacy. It's so great, too, that your grandmother was able to tell you those stories. That can be really powerful. So 2.0, I like that idea. So one of the ways in which you're different is that you're an urban farmer. So 
why be an urban farmer? And some people might think that that's a contradiction in terms. What's important about farming in the city as opposed to leaving the farming up to the countryside? Well, there are two things that that stick out to me immediately. The first one being is I'm from Los Angeles. And the idea of picking up and relocating to some rural environment didn't really appeal to me. The land would be cheaper, but the cost of transport would equal out. Uh, so for me, that didn't quite fit. And then also there's this, this thing, we have all this land. You know, you don't think about it because you, when you think about farmland in general, you think about acres of fields where you can grow wheat and things like that. However, in a city, our land is vertical. So you have so much unused space in buildings that can be converted into growing operations to grow and cultivate food in cities. And the reason why that's really beneficial is, number one, it's an opportunity for job creation. As I spoke about earlier with an aging farm population and needing to replace that population, people aren't exactly jazzed about moving into a rural environment if you're from a city. And not only that, but to give opportunities to people that have you know, not had the best options as far as career paths within inner city environments to give a connection back to food, which is so important for long-term public health reasons. It's the cutting down on food miles. There's a difference between something being local because local is considered 30 miles. Well, in Los Angeles, 30 miles could take you two and a half hours. So the idea of hyperlocal, which is under five to 10 miles from your market source. When you look at that bubble of a space, cities in general do also have vacant land on their rosters that could be repurposed for growing food. And so, you know, for me, it really kicked up this idea of like, okay, you know, if I'm driving a commercial truck from 40 miles away, there's the greenhouse gases of that. And then there's an actual, the fuel expenditure for that. If I can cut that down significantly, then I cut down those two issues. And then on top of that, by growing in an urban environment, you're forced to use sustainable practices. If you want to be able to put out a sizable amount of produce to grow potentially in a hydroponic or aquaponic environment, to use vertical growing techniques. And so through that, it feeds back to sustainability. And we know that Population trends show that more people are moving into urban environments. So the more that we can lean into the technology of growing food where people are, the the better off we'll be. Interesting. And I imagine it also like it makes it more immediate too, right? A lot of the time we're so estranged from, you know, how we get our food. The the fundamental things that really shape our lives kind of happen behind a curtain somewhere but bringing it closer to home and people have a more direct connection with food in this particular case. So talk to me a little bit about the techniques. So there's hydroponic and aquaponic farming. Can you explain a little bit what those are, what the difference between the two of them is? Sure. So hydroponic and aquaponic are two water-based techniques for growing food. And essentially with hydroponic, you have water, The plants grow directly in the water, but that water is supplemented with nutrients, with synthetic nutrients. They can also be organic, but you're putting inputs into the water in order to provide nitrogen and supplemental elements to the plant. Using hydroponic technology is about 70% less water usage than traditional soil-based growing. 
And then to take it a step further from that would be aquaponic cultivation. And with aquaponic cultivation, what you're doing is you're growing crops in a semi-closed loop environment. So what I mean by that is you've got fish living in one tank. You feed the fish the fish food. The fish do their thing and provide the excrement. That goes through a series of biofilters. The solids are filtered out. And then what's left behind is a nutrient-rich solution, which the plants take up the nutrients they need, and then that fresh water cycles back to the fish. And with that, you're only adding water to the system to account for evaporation and transpiration, transpiration being the water that's taken up by the plants. And so when you're growing aquaponically, it's 90% less water than soil-based growing. So it's even less than hydroponic growing, but it there are pluses and minuses to both techniques of growing. And what, what's sort of the range of, of things that you can grow in those environments? The things that do the best in hydroponic and aquaponic environments are leafy greens, your cut herbs. You can do tomatoes, cucumbers, a lot of fruiting vegetables. The, the one challenge becomes rooting vegetables. So like your potatoes, carrots, and things like that, they can still be done. I know that there are folks doing it, but um, the cost benefit analysis isn't, isn't up to par yet. So, and those are, so the leafy greens, tomatoes, things like that, those are all things that I imagine demand a pretty high amount of water if they're grown in a more traditional agricultural setting. So it really would have a significant impact. Are there farms that are doing this on a large scale? There are. And so one of the farms uh, that comes to mind is Del Cabo. A lot of our tomatoes that we eat in the U.S. come from Del Cabo Farms, and they have, I don't know how many, but I want to say hundreds of greenhouses in Mexico. Plenty of varieties of tomatoes come from Del Cabo. In the States, you have a few companies that have been around for a bit that have been growing. Gotham Greens is is a well-known producer. I believe they partnered up with Whole Foods in a few locations there, there are quite a few companies that are that are doing this in the States. And then there are a few companies that are focused on setting other farmers up with the ability to grow in controlled environments. So they'll come in and, and set up the greenhouse, set up the, the shipping container, whatever the grow source is, and then um, enable other farmers to, to start their operation. Um, it's, it must be fascinating to keep up with all the new developments in the farming world these days, because it's just such a dynamic field. Um, so you you had your own farm um, and you sold particularly microgreens. And now my understanding is that you primarily consult. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I almost have no time for consulting uh, these <laughs> days. I mean, like, well, well, you know, it's very clear to me that when when George Floyd was murdered, there was a big shift in my career. I recognized the need for me to be more engaged in diversity within the Jewish community than uh, with growing food, because there's always going to be people to grow food. And I can always circle back to that. But but in that moment, I felt like my, my purpose and my need was to be focused on that. So I kind of quietly put most of my agricultural things on the shelf. Um, I do still sit on National Young Farmer uh, Coalition's policy setting things on the shelf. So your title is your Jewish Federation's Director of Community Safety and Belonging. What, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a, it, the title is a mouthful. Uh, essentially, so I'm a part of our JEDI team, which stands for Jewish Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. And my title, Director of Community Safety and Belonging, specifically 
deals with that nexus of how do we create communities of belonging within our Jewish community. So the folks that historically have been on the margins of our Jewish community, how do we bring them to the center? So that's Jews of color, that's LGBTQ plus Jews, that's people that have access needs, that's English second language folks. We've got about 10 groups of people that we've identified as those that sit on the margins and how do we bring them to the center? So that's one part of my work is building communities of belonging. And the safety part of it is related to my law enforcement background. So there's an initiative, current, a current initiative called Live Secure. And Live Secure is intended to strengthen the safety and security of the Jewish community and Jewish communal service points. So that's your synagogues, your day schools, and things of the like. Well, there's a challenge there when it comes to strengthening security. What happens to, to Jews that historically have interacted with law enforcement in a negative way? So for, for example, for myself as a Black Jew, I know that when something in the world happens and the threat level goes up and security is heightened, I tend to face more scrutiny when I go to enter a synagogue. So part of my work is trying to mitigate some of that, that unnecessary scrutiny. And it's also to create more understanding for our security service providers around understanding who our Jewish community really is and what it looks like. So that's kind of more of what that work is. And then I have a third bucket, which is intergroup partnerships. So how is the Jewish community interacting with other faith faith-based groups across the country and other diversity touch points. That's quite a lot of responsibility you have. <laughs> Which is why I'm not farming these days. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go back to farming sort of for a minute. So I'm wondering about how your faith connects to your experience in farming and to your relationship to the natural world more broadly, which is kind of the nexus of my podcast, right? How does culture and our relationship to the natural world relate? Rabbi Rothstein and I had a talk about the creation story in Genesis, and specifically we talked about the ways in which the creation story has been blamed for a human's exploitative relationship to the natural world, but how now a lot of Jews, and, and really it goes across other religions as well, are sort of rethinking these texts and rethinking particularly the creation story as one more of like responsibility and caretaking than one of dominance per se. Anyway, I couldn't help but think when I was reading about your work of the fact that in that creation story, there's a, a verse that relates specifically to farming. So it's Genesis 1:29. The text reads, and God said, behold, I have given you every seed bearing herb, which is upon the surface of the entire earth and every tree that has seed bearing fruit it will be yours for food. So I'm just curious, I'm wondering how you see the relationship between your faith or your practice as a Jew and your experience as a farmer. Is there a connection there? You know, it's interesting to think about that text and where it fits in for me with farming. I tend to lean more towards the text around leaving the corners of your field for the needy, for the poor, for the widow, particularly when we're talking about growing food in urban environments. And what does it mean to be giving access to the needy? So that's like very much the cornerstone. Of, and even when I was producing and selling in the farmer's markets, I priced my produce based on the zip code that I was selling in. And, and I actually had someone say, well, wait a minute, you charge me this much in this farmer's market. Well, why is it more expensive in this farmer's market? And it was the difference between an outside farmer's market and, and Beverly Hills farmer's market. And I said, well, 
people that are shopping in the Beverly Hills Farmer's Market can pay this price point. And by them paying this price point, it allows me to offer this expensive produce to another area. And they're like, cool, I'm going to pay you the amount that you've said. So there's that piece of it. And then there's a part of me that's an undercover nerd. And, <laughs> and I like to say undercover because I try to keep my cool card. And, 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 what, and what really sticks out to me is not exactly from the Torah, but from Maimonides. And Maimonides was you know, a scientist, a doctor, a theologian, so many different things. But one of the things that Maimonides says is that the more you understand with science, the closer to God, the closer to Hashem you get. And the reason why he says that is because the more that you unpack the nuance of science and try to recreate it, the more you realize how awe-inspiring it is to try to recreate. And anyone that has built an aquaponic system where you're building an, it, it, the ecosystem, you recognize the awe for ha- what happens naturally that we're trying to, to create. And so that's something that's always really stuck with me and, and carried me throughout was you know, this idea of like, no matter what I do, it's not as great or it, it won't be exactly as what has been created in this world. And then there's another piece of it, if I want to add a third piece, which is Jewish ethics. And when we're talking about business, Are we using honest weights and measures? It's the idea that when you have employees, paying them a living wage and then paying them on time. Um, So there were like a lot of different pieces. And and really, I felt like that was my guiding force when I was operating my farm, was making sure that I was doing things within the framework of Jewish thought. That's lovely. Thank you so much. It's so striking to see somebody who really follows their heart you know, and, and also is guided by a sense of ethics, which clearly you are in the choices that you make as you move forward in your life. So what are you, do you have any interesting projects going forward that you want to share? Not in the ag world at the moment. Uh, I was working on a startup and put that on hold literally May of 2020. But I think that the one thing that I, I would encourage people to do is look at the farm bill, look at the the information about the upcoming farm bill, support young farmers because they've got a tall order as it stands with the cost of producing food right now, the cost of inputs going up, any ways that people can support local farmers and young farmers, definitely reach out and do that because I can only imagine with gas, especially here in Los Angeles, where we're hitting $7 a gallon, I would be working for Sadaka. I would be working on a voluntary basis if I were still producing crops right now. Yeah, that's incredible. Do you have any advice for a young person who's interested in becoming a farmer? My advice would be to see if you can shadow someone else and, and learn under a farmer that's already doing it. It'll save you some money. Uh, in the long run, because you can learn the lessons while you're learning with someone else versus having to learn them on your own. Because if you're operating hydroponically or aquaponically, crop loss will happen. But being able to pivot when that crop loss happens is something that requires experience. Um, You know, I had a month one time where it was one thing after another, and I was out of markets for three weeks. And that was a big deal. And luckily, microgreens grow fast, so I could get back into the markets. But if I were growing, say, broccoli and had a catastrophic crop loss, I I would have been out of business. So uh, my recommendation is to, number one, learn under somebody else. Number two, start small 
I started learning how to grow with YouTube and then went on to learn through internship type programs. But start somewhere uh, and then scale up. You don't have to hit the treadmill at 12. You know, you can start at three and then work your way up. Right, right. Good point. Well, thank you so much. Is there any topic that you think that we should hit that we have left? I think the only thing, other thing that I'm, I'm thinking about right now is the fact that we're still in Shemitah. And it's what does it mean for this year of rest for the land and, and rest for us, especially after coming out of two years of pandemic life? Uh, so, you know, that's something else to just be mindful of for folks. Can to be you explain? Of. Because not all of my listeners may know what Shemitah is. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, Shemitah is a time period every seven years where we are commanded to let the land go fallow. So, what that means is we allow the land to heal itself. And we don't actually cultivate that land for the year period. And so what that means is if you've got a field of arugula that's growing, the arugula will just continue to grow and go to seed and and it'll allow the nitrogen to fix somewhat in the land. Uh, But then at the same time, it means that that area is open for anyone to eat from. And so especially at a time like now where people are really you know, struggling with the economic situation we're in, like being mindful of how we're providing resources to the masses is really important and giving ourselves space to rest and recover. If you're not familiar with Shemitah, definitely do a little bit of reading on it. It, It's an amazing practice to take on. Coming up, I have a very interesting interview with environmentalist John Brulak, founder of Nutiva, co-founder of agroforestry regeneration communities, and executive producer of the film Kiss the Ground. But I'm going on vacation for three weeks, so it will likely come out in early August. In the spirit of Shemitah, I hope you are also able to take some time this summer to rest and recuperate. Be back soon. <laughs>